0: Good afternoon, everybody, and uh, welcome to uh, University College's fifth annual Access Lecture. Um, We are really delighted that our lecturer uh, this year is uh, Daphne Kohler, who is uh, one of the world's most distinguished and innovative computer scientists. She has a special interest in machine learning and AI. I will tell you a little bit about her academic background and then go on to say something about um, um, the particular relevance of her work for those of us who are interested in um, access to higher education. Uh, Professor Kohler was educated at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem and at Stanford, where she now holds although not so much longer, she's just told me, uh, for reasons I will explain, the uh, Rajiv Motwani Chair in the School of uh, Engineering. She has had uh, more prizes and awards than I have got time to uh, list here for, for, uh, for her work, but it includes the MacArthur Foundation Fellowship, the first ACM Inversis Foundation Award and election to the American Academy of um, Arts and Sciences. In addition to her work in computational biology and computational uh, uh, medicine, uh, Professor Kohler has also taken an interest in, and always taken an interest, in innovative and inclusive uh, teaching. She founded and led Stanford's uh, summer research experience for computer science undergraduates. And then in 2010, with her colleague Andrew Ng, she initiated and piloted uh, on their own Stanford classes an online educational model. One thing led to another, and two years later, she, with Andrew Young, co-founded and uh, co-managed Coursera. Uh, Coursera offers Stanford courses free to the general public. Uh, These courses included uh, her own on uh, probabilistic graphical models. Using the platform of Coursera, uh, MOOCs uh, as they are now known, massive online open courses have been adopted by uh, many other leading universities in the United States and uh, indeed uh, throughout the world. Uh, Why is Dr Nicola now, but not for very much longer, the holder of the distinguished chair of engineering at Stanford? And that is because she has taken what must have been difficult and brave decision to, leave formal academia at least for a few years in order to concentrate uh, on the development of uh, online uh, education through Coursera um, uh, uh, across uh, the globe. Now I first met Professor Kohler when she spoke at a meeting of UNIV alumni in San Francisco and I was so impressed and uh, I think it's fair to say entranced by what she had to say about the potential Of 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 MOOCs that I invited her to come to Univ to give our annual access lecture. I didn't think she'd say yes, but she did say yes, and I'm delighted that she did so. Thank you, you, Sir Ivor, for the
1: very generous introduction. I hope I can live up to that. Um, And yes, it was a very difficult decision, but as I hope I'll be able to convince you in this talk, um, I think there is a tremendous and almost unbelievable opportunity for us to make a significant impact in opening up access to education to people everywhere in the world, and it was not an opportunity that I personally felt able to walk away from. So that's kind of what this talk is about. Um so let me tell you about a little bit about the effort and what we're doing and I hope to leave plenty of time for questions at the end. There is inevitably questions in this lecture. Uh so the birth of the of this MOOC movement uh can probably be placed uh in the fall of two thousand eleven when a group of us at Stanford University uh working from uh work based on technologies that we developed at Stanford over the previous years, launched the first of the massive open online courses. Oh, the lights, I'm sorry. You did tell me and I forgot. Um, Launched the first of the MOOCs, massive open online courses. These were three graduate courses in computer science um, that we decided to make available to everyone around the world to take for free. Um, these were pretty advanced topics, so we expected an enrollment of maybe a few thousand students in each of those courses. but within a matter of weeks, each of those courses had an enrollment of a hundred thousand students or more. Now, the number hundred thousand is difficult to put in perspective in an academic environment. so in order to make it concrete, Um, Let me give an example. The largest of these courses, as offered at Stanford, is considered one of those large um, lecture courses um, that everyone loves to criticize. Um, It has an enrollment of 400 students every time it's offered. In order to reach that same enrollment um, that the big open course had by teaching the Stanford course, my colleague Andrew, who teaches that machine learning course, would have have had to teach it for 250 years. Now that number by itself is significant but I think even more significant is the fact that by doing so he would have reached 250 generations of highly privileged Stanford students as opposed to the students from every country, every age group and every walk of life that he was able to reach by offering it to everyone for free via the internet. So that, um, that moment really gave us all pause for thought because it was clear that there was an opportunity here to affect massive change in the world by, making, by using the scalability of digital technology to offer education at what is effectively a zero marginal cost per student. And that opportunity was too large to pass up. And so in January of 2012, we spun this out from Stanford as a separate effort. Um, in order to allow multiple top universities to offer free classes to everyone around the world. Um, We launched in April 2012. Uh, We had um, four university partners, Stanford, Princeton, University of Pennsylvania, and University of Michigan. Uh, We had 200,000 students left over from the Stanford courses in the fall, and uh, 37 courses. Um, That was April 2012, just a little over two years ago. So fast forward two years, and this is approximately where we are today. Um, This is a pretty recent screenshot. Um, You can see that we now have over 8 million learners from, I think, every single country around the world, with the exception of North Korea. Um, We even have students from Antarctica. I didn't realize people lived in Antarctica. Um taking um 673 courses from 110 partners. So let me talk a little bit about um, some of these um, some of these statistics. Um these are some of the universities that we have working with us. We started initially as the US-based effort with four US universities, but now we actually have more non-US than we do US partners. We have Uh, some of the top leading universities from um, the U.S., uh, besides the ones you've heard, Yale, Columbia, Chicago, UCSF, Johns Hopkins, Duke, and many others. But also, as you can see, some of the world's top universities outside of the United States. So here in the UK, we have the University of Edinburgh, the University of London, and the University of Manchester. Uh, But we also have EPFL in Switzerland, Uh, Melbourne in Australia, the National University of Singapore, Peking University, National Taiwan University, and many, many others. So, yeah. Um, The courses started out primarily as computer science courses, but again, we have since moved significantly away from that. You can see courses here uh, in every discipline there's uh, two from Edinburgh up at the top there, one on e-learning, digital cultures, introduction to philosophy, uh, business, business course, multiple business courses, photography, uh, astrobiology, um, many, many others. So basically, you can see a distribution of the disciplines over there. Um, they don't total 100 because courses are listed a lot in multiple disciplines. Many of our courses are actually interdisciplinary. Um, One category of courses that we're particularly proud of, and that I wanted to highlight, especially in the context of this access lecture, is intended to address the often asked question, which is, in many parts of the world, higher education is not where the problem begins. It begins a lot earlier in primary and secondary education. So what are you doing to address that problem? Now, we don't believe that the kind of technology that we have is the right way to teach a seven-year-old how to read or a five-year-old how to sit still and pay attention. For that, you need a teacher. But in many parts of the world, there is a huge lack of qualified teachers. In order to address the um, the, um, Millennium Development Goals of the United Nations of putting every, every child in primary school, in school, sorry, every child of primary school age into a school, two million teachers would have to be trained. Now there's no way to address that in the two and a half years that we have remaining for the development goals using traditional techniques. And so in in our attempt to help address this problem, we've worked with a number of organizations, including the Commonwealth Education Trust here in the UK, to prepare a very broad curriculum of teacher training materials that are intended to help train teachers and make them better at teaching our children. And we currently have, I think, about 50 courses in this category, um, and many teachers have been using it to help hone their skills. So um, let's talk a little bit about the sort of a few, a few summary statistics before we move on to the next part of the talk. So there's been over 10,000 years of videos watched by our learners in the last two years. Over 44 million quizzes have been submitted. Over 4 million peer-graded assessments, which are these much deeper, essay questions, design questions, and so on and so forth. And over one and a quarter million courses have been completed by our learners. So um, I recently joined um, Chief Executive Officer Rick Levin, who was for 20 years the president of Yale and one of the most recognized uh, presidents in the last 50 years, um, thinks that what we're doing is really expanding the mission of the world's great universities. When you think about what a traditional view of the mission of the university is, you usually hear two answers. Um, It's to advance knowledge through research and to disseminate that knowledge via publication and teaching. Most great research universities define their mission via these two prongs. Um, Rick argues that um, in a few years, the, the value of a research university will be measured with a third prong, which is to affect global impact via teaching at scale. And universities will be evaluated on their success in that third prong as much as on the first two. So I'm going to have, with that introduction, the remainder of the talk is going to have three parts. How, who, and why. The how is what these courses are and how they do their job. The who is what is the population, for the learners, And the why is a reminder of why we're doing this. So the how is, first of all, what are these courses like on the inside? So the primary modality that we use is video-based instruction. It makes the instructor come to life. It creates a personal connection between the instructor and the student, even at the kinds of scales that we're talking about, much more than a pure text modality. However, we didn't want to make this the long video lecture captures that are standard in online materials, but rather these are short, to the point video chunks of about eight to 10 minutes. And even within those eight to 10 minutes, there is the interactivity between the learner and the material. So let me show you what that looks like. I'm hoping the video works because it's not my laptop. So this is one of the videos, it's from the University of Michigan. It's one of the styles that are used. There are many styles. You can see lecturing, writing on the tablet. When the video pauses at the yellow notch, the learners get asked a question? They answer the question, are immediately told whether they're right or wrong, and have a chance to try again. Now, this is the kind of interaction that we would have in a really good lecture class, um, when, the, when the instructor pauses and asks the students questions. But in the large lecture hall, at least speaking from my own experience, what usually happens is that 80% of the students are still scribbling the last thing I said. And then there's the smarty pants in the front row who answers the question. Usually it's always the same guy. (laughs) And he answers the question before pretty much anyone else has had a chance to realize that a question had been asked, and then the class moves on. Here, every single learner has a chance to engage with the material. see whether they're following or not. And that significantly enhances the retention and the engagement with the material. And people have used these in video quizzes in a whole variety of interesting ways. So this, for example, is from Dan Ariely, who's a very renowned uh, pop scientist um, appeared in the New York Times and many other places, who taught a class called The Beginner's Guide to Rational Behavior. And he pauses the video at these at these different points and asks the students not a, not a question about them the, about their understanding of the material but how they would think about a particular problem and he uses that to expose logical fallacies in the students thinking because he presents to them a the histogram of answers from other students in the course and so it makes them feel like they're part of a community in interacting with the material now of course these little baby questions inside the uh, videos is not where the meaningful learning happens. As educators, we all know that for students to learn, they need to engage actively with the material. And so for that, there is homework every week. Now, of course, the problem with homework is that how do you grade the work of 100,000 students if you don't have 5,000 teaching assistants? And so we've taken two different strategies to, um, make it, to making this feasible. Both of them are strategies for um, grading at scale. The first is having the computer do the hard work for you. And fortunately, at this point, we have enough of an infrastructure that computers can actually grade a fairly broad array of different types of work. So, In addition to the usual multiple choice questions, there's also the short answer questions like we saw in the video. Um, you can grade anything that produces a structured output. It can be a computer program, a computer model, or an Excel spreadsheet. Um, you can also grade math expressions based not on syntactic identity, but rather on semantic equivalence. So that if the correct answer is x squared over 2, the computer will recognize 0.5 times x times x as the correct answer without being told, giving, making it much easier for instructors to, pro- to ask open-ended math questions. Mm-hmm. Now, it turns out that instructors have been really quite successful at, um, u- at leveraging this technology for really innovative forms of teaching. So this is one of my favorite examples, but there are many others. Uh, Professor Mike Schatz from Georgia Tech taught a class called Introductory Physics 1 with Laboratory. Now how do you teach a lab class when half of your, when half of your students are in countries like uh, Ghana and Bangladesh and India and they don't have access to an actual lab? So what Mike did is he had the students perform the experiment using objects that are found in their own environments, balls and tables and so on and so forth. But that, of course, leaves the question of how do you grade the correctness of an experiment when you have no idea what the mass of the ball was or the friction coefficient on the table. And so what Mike did is he developed image processing software where the students um, film the experiment using their cell phone camera. And then I don't know if you can see those little red dots where the ball is being tracked. And so he computes accelerations and velocities and so on, he uses that as ground truth to evaluate the correctness of the student's measurement and the correctness of their experiment. Now, the interesting thing about this, and I'll come back to this a little bit later, um, is that my students at Georgia Tech found out about this. And they have access to world-class experimental lab facilities, but they said, we also want to do our experiments in basketball courts and other places. And so now, my students are not going into the lab to do their experiments. They're doing it in the real world. And engaging much more deeply with the material, and they're coming to class and actually discussing the experiments with their fellow students in a much more interactive way. And Mike says that basically these dull, cookbook instructional labs really discourage and bore vast numbers of students, and this is a much more engaging approach, to, um, even for students with the privilege of having access to the lab. Now, the nice thing about auto grading is that it's not simply an ask an inter. Um, an intervention that allows grading at scale. It also has pedagogical benefits. Um, and primarily, it allows the student to get feedback about the correctness of their work not three weeks later when the TA has, or the tutor has had a chance to grade the work, but immediately as soon as they submit it. And furthermore, because computers don't get tired of grading again and again, they have the opportunity to resubmit the same work and see if they get it better after having been given that kind of feedback. And so, um, this really encourages in the student um, a mastery learning approach, which is kind of like what you see in a computer game where if you die on level three, you immediately start the game because you, from, from the beginning because you think you can do better this time. We see that behavior in, um, in the students here where the further away the student is from getting the right answer, the more likely they are to resubmit the quiz. Um, and that has benefits not just in getting the right answer to this quiz, but we've done pretty detailed analytics that show that students who engage in this mastery based learning also end up doing better on subsequent assignments and on the final exam. And so this is an intervention that has its own benefits. Now, one important aspect of at-scale grading or the ability to collect and assess work at scale is that it also provides an incredibly valuable perspective on the course itself and what's working and what's not. So I'm going to give just one example of that, again, there are many. Um, this is a distribution of wrong student answers in one of the questions in, the, in one of the courses. Um, so each little cross is a one-off wrong answer. But the big crosses, like the one in the top left, is where 2,000 students made the exact same mistake. Now, if two students in a class of 100 make the same mistake, you'd never notice. But when it's 200 students making the same, 2,000 students making the same mistake, it kind of jumps out at you. And so the instructor and TAs went in, looked at the question, understood the basis for the fallacy, and now every student whose answer falls into that bucket automatically get very valuable feedback that tells them where their thinking is wrong and how to correct the um, their, their fallacy. And so you effectively get personalization by virtue of big data. From, uh, from this kind of model. Another aspect of big data, which is something that's emerged uh, to us unexpectedly, is uh, that it opens up new research opportunities, not just on education, but in a vo- whole variety of other disciplines. So This is uh, Professor Bakker from uh, Leiden University. And he teaches a course on terrorism. And part of his research work is understanding global attitudes to terrorism in different countries. And so he collected data from students in more than 140 countries using the quizzes and the questionnaires in his course, and that's a treasure trove of data about, about attitudes to this topic that he can use as the basis for writing subsequent research papers. This is not the only example we have other examples for example in in nutrition and even in probability where that we where the instructor tested people's ability to perform probabilistic calculations and what kind of uh fallacies they have there so that's one um aspect of um that's one form of grading um that we can do at scale the other Uh, example, Uh, the other way in which we do at-scale grading is a mechanism called peer grading. It's based on ideas that were developed at uh, UCLA for small classes, and we incorporated ingredients from crowdsourcing to make it applicable to at-scale grading. So in in this example, in in peer grading, the students submit their own work, and having done that, they get a grading rubric, a set of criteria that are defined by the instructor for how to assess the work of other students. Um, They... Um, these are very carefully constructed so that the students think critically about, you know, the form. say, for example, of the essay or the case study, whether certain critical points were made, whether the appropriate scholarly references were given, and so on and so forth, and provide both qualitative as well as a grade to the other students the, whose work they're assessing, and they typically assess the work of five others. Now... Um You might um, ask a few questions about um, this. The first of all is whether this actually works, as in are students capable of providing reliable grades? So in this experiment, again, followed by a number of others that have made the same point, uh, Professor Mitch Denier from Princeton uh, had his TAs grade independently um, the several thousand final uh, uh, essays in his uh, sociology course, Um, these are three essay questions, and what you can see here is a very strong correlation between the PA assigned score on the x-axis and the peer score on the y-axis, suggesting that when the grade rubric is well-defined, these actually give reliable answers. Um, Now the other nice aspect of peer grading is that it allows us to do At scale, the kind of experiential learning that you would think could only be done in small scale classes with very detailed instructor involvement. So, here is an example of what is typically a very small course taught at um, Wharton Business School at the University of Pennsylvania. It's a design course. Um, It's really an eight week project class where the students submit, first of all, a problem specification, then a concept, a prototype, and finally an artifact. Um, Here they um, the instructor used peer grading as opposed to instructor feedback for, um, for these students. And so by the time the course had ended, each student got eight weeks' worth of feedback times five, so 40 pieces of feedback from other students in the class, which really helped provide them very in depth and, and very broad spectrum of feedback, giving rise to some very creative designs that um, the instructor, Carl Ulrich, tells me are the best ones are as good as what he sees in his Horton class. The other thing we hear from Carl and others is that the students tell, them, tell the instructors that they find the grading process itself to be as valuable or maybe even more valuable than doing the work themselves because the process of thinking critically about what makes for a good piece of work and a not so good piece of work really helps teach them both critical assessment skills as well as what they might have done better in their own work and so it's a really valuable pedagogical experience for them as well. Um, and this really um, opens the door to, I think, projects that are pretty special. And so I'd like to end this, um, this particular segment on assessment with, um, with one final example. Uh, this is an interesting course because um, it's uh, taught by Professor Scott Plaus at Wesleyan, which is a small liberal arts college in the United States, typically with very small classes, uh, maybe a dozen students in a class. Um, this class, taught by the Professors Club class, class, was the single largest MOOC ever offered. It had an enrollment of 250,000 students. Now, this is not a, you know, a programming class, this is a class on social psychology, uh, which actually highlights the fact that many of our mo- more popular classes are actually in the arts and the humanities and in the social sciences, which we consider to be a, a, an amazing and wonderful thing. Um, The final project in the course was called the Day of Compassion. Um, Students in the class had to live 24 hours embodying the virtue of compassion, analyze the results, uh, their experiences using the techniques taught in the course, and write up the results which were graded via peer grading. Several thousand students completed the final project. Um, 700 got a perfect score. One of those, the, 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 the one that got a perfect score voted on by other students in the class. And the grand prize winner by uh, this Indian physician called Balesh Jindal, um, she got to go to Stanford to meet the Dalai Lama. Um, and let me tell you about her project and rem- remembering that it's one of several hundred that got a perfect score. But left decided she wanted to do something about the problem of uh, of sexual violence against girls and women in India, a very prevalent problem. So she found a school that had um, nearby to where she works that has two thousand girls from lower income families. She got them together um, and discussed with them what sexual violence means and um, and identified several dozen cases of girls that had been subjects of sexual violence by family members, neighbors, teachers, and so on. Um, and she's now offering these girls and their mothers pro bono consulting at her clinic on an ongoing basis, as well as convinced several other of her physician friends to do the same for other girls' schools in India. And so if you think about the impact that this one professor, Scott Plaus, who typically teaches a few dozen students at Wesleyan, has had on the world, if this is one of several hundred projects that touched the lives, just by itself, of hundreds of people in India. <coughs> so the last um, part of this section is what happens at the end of the course if you successfully complete all of the work. And what we've put in place is a mechanism called a verified certificate, so the students who successfully complete the course and identity verify themselves are able to earn that certificate, which again, as we'll see in the very last section of the, co- of the lecture, um, allows them, opens the opportunity often to career paths that would otherwise be closed to them. Now, I'm highlighting this one for two other reasons as well. Uh, one which i will talk about in a few minutes, and the second is that it's also our path to sustainability as an enterprise. This is completely optional, the courses are still free, but students who elect to get these verified certificates pay a modest amount of about $50 for having their identity verified. Um that $50 is a very small fee compared to what tuition for most courses would cost. Um and and again it's completely optional and furthermore we have a financial aid option for students who can't afford it. But we believe that this will be enough, we hope, to make us sustainable and allow us to continue free to offer free education. So um moving on to the second Part of the talk, which is the who. Who are the students that um, that we're currently serving? So this is a high level set of statistics. So first of all, um, only about 15% of our learners are currently enrolled in undergraduate degree programs. And they're by and large using it as a supplement to their um, their courses in cases where the instruction that they're getting is not of the quality that they would like it to be. By contrast, 70% of the students are over 30 years old. Most of them are working adults. Um, They distribute about a third each from the U.S., a third from other developed economies, and a third from emerging economies around the world. And not just the BRIC countries, but also you can see 4% are from Africa, um, every country in Latin America, and so on and so forth. And about 50% of the enrollments are in courses that deliver career-relevant skills, so that's, which gives these learners a chance at a better job. So in order to um, facilitate global access to these courses, we've done a number of things that, um, that have helped generate those numbers that you saw. First of all, we have a global translation program where learners from our community from all over the world are giving something back by translating these courses for free so as to make the content more accessible to to learners in their own country or from their own language. And you can see these are six of the languages that we're offering right now, uh, but there's many others as well. And this, by the way, uh, was absolutely central to the incredible growth in students that we've seen in China, for example. The second thing that we've done in order to increase access is um, create a mobile uh, platform as a core part of the experience. In most of the developing world, people access the internet via their mobile device. And without mobile access, we would basically be shutting ourselves off from a large part of the audience in these countries. So we have both an iOS and an Android app. So um, you saw that 70% that these students are very different from the students that attend an institution like Oxford. They are um, older. They are by and large working. Um, They're from countries where life often is rather difficult. And as a consequence, we have this thing that has been written up in the media endlessly called the retention problem of MOOCs. Um, Every article that you will see talks about how this is a huge deficiency in the MOOC um, direction because most people who begin a MOOC don't complete it. That's true. Most people who begin a MOOC, however, don't intend to complete it. How many of you have signed up for a MOOC? How many of you have completed the MOOC? OK. Here we are. Um, it's not because you're not talented or because you're unable to complete the course. By and large, it's because many of you just didn't even intend to do it in the first place. Most people who sign up for MOOC are browsing. They're trying to figure out what this MOOC thing is all about, or maybe they want to know what that astrobiology thing is about, and then they um, come in, and they realize that astrobiology is actually a real serious scientific topic, and it's not about UFOs. They, which by the way, the comment I've heard, um, they drop out, um, and so the question isn't how many people, and then by the way, a few people, uh, sorry, quite a large number of people who, uh, who s- stick with the MOOC don't submit even a single homework because that's not where their head is at. They are effectively auditors. They they're treating this like a, like an iTunes U or a or a PBS document, a BBC documentary, so. I think the real question is, of the people who intend to complete a MOOC, how many of them do so? And so here is one way of looking at that. Here is the average completion rates of different populations. These are the people overall. And you can see it's about 5%, which is the numbers that we hear quoted in the media. Of the people who say maybe about two or three weeks into the course that they intend to complete the course, that's after they realize that it's not about UFOs. Um, you can see that about sixty-six percent of le- uh, sorry, yeah, sixty-three percent of the learners at that stage end up completing. That. If they furthermore put that little bit of skin in the game, the fifty dollars yeah. that is required in order to um, get the verified certificate, among those learners, the completion rates get close to ninety percent. So I think it's important to calibrate our expectations to the question of intent, which is not an issue in your traditional college class where everybody who signs up for a class intends to complete it. But there's also other ways of increasing retention that are um, important and that we're trying to leverage. So here's an interesting experiment that really inspired us um, from a group in Ohio, um, which was created by this woman called Sharon Watkins, standing at the top left. She got together a group of uh, women who are not among life's most fortunate. They are mostly uh, uneducated, without college education, that is lower income, working either unemployed or working low-paying jobs. She got 10 of them together, and they decided they were going to take a class uh, facilitated by Sharon. Uh, Sharon is not an expert in discipline. It's a, Dar- it's a school from the Darden Business School at the University of Virginia. The 10 of them got together, took the class, and nine of them completed the class. um, And six of them passed an MBA level final exam. Two of them went on to get jobs on the strength of having completed this class. Now, these completion rates are very unusual, and certainly for a population that comes in relatively ill-prepared. And so that really inspired us to do something considerably broader along the same lines of small groups learning together. And so we set up an effort, this was in October of, uh, of last year, um, called the Coursera Learning Hub. This is a partnership that we have with a broad range of institutions or organizations around the world. Started out actually with US embassies, um, but then expanded uh, to the Carlos Slim Foundation in Mexico, um, community centers in New York Public Library System, and so on. And what these organizations do is they provide space, and often a facilitator, um, where people can come together with connection to high-speed internet Study together quietly um, and hopefully achieve better results. And sure enough, uh, from preliminary results from the US uh, embassies, which were the first of these partners, we hear that the completion rates in these, um, in these efforts are around 70% as well. And so this is a very strong way of increasing um, student learning outcomes. So the question is okay so what about on-campus teaching does this threaten our traditional universities and that's the other big thing that the media has made a tremendous amount of hype about um hyperbole actually one way or the other um and so how does this potentially strengthen our um, rather than destroy a traditional university um this is one of my favorite quotes Um, It says, the college is a place where professors' lecture notes go straight to the students' lecture notes without passing through the brains of either. (laughs) Um, Not perhaps the most um, charitable view of traditional teaching, and certainly not what you would see here at Oxford with the small one-to-one instruction that you are so fortunate as to enjoy here. But for most learners, most students in most universities, this is what the experience looks so how do we make that better? Maybe, and this is what we're starting to see, is that we should do something that's the best of both worlds. That is, um, the basic conveyal of content, the delivery of content, can be done by the students on their own, listening quietly, being able to pause, and think, and rewind, and take notes, and so on, without having to rush to, to uh, keep up with what the instructor is saying. Um, and then they come to class to do something that's much more similar to what you do here at Oxford. Um, within, of course, the budgetary constraints of most universities that are not as well endowed, um, but the students have been, we've been seeing a model where the students get together in groups and employ a peer teaching model that is inspired by the kind of uh, dialogue that we see here between a tutor and and uh, their students, but really um, done on a peer-to-peer level, which allows this to be scaled up to the kinds of large classrooms that, um, that exist in most other institutions. And what's really striking is that this is um, a remarkably effective intervention. So when you look at some of the results that have been published by institutions that have done this, this is results, for example, from the University of Wisconsin-Madison, which was one of the first to employ flipped classroom teaching as early as a decade ago, long before MOOC's ever came off the scene. You can see that what happens, this is on the left, distribution uh, histogram of grades in traditional, in a traditional offering of a class. And on the right, in a, what's called blended learning or flipped classroom version, this is the same course with the same grading standards. And you can see that what happens is that the students who are failing move over into the passing range. And the failure rates can drop down from 30% to less than 5% in a lot of these offerings, which is really, I think, a very, um, again, an important intervention um, in many places. So from that perspective, um, I think a really useful way of looking at it is one proposed by Christian Turwish, who's an operations management uh, professor at Wharton Business School, who taught a MOOC on Coursera, whose final lecture is a case study of Coursera from an operations management perspective. And what you see here is his argument is that um, education, by nature, is a a trade off (coughs) along a Pareto-optimal curve, where on the x-axis here, you have faculty productivity, the number of students taught in an hour. And on the y-axis, you have student learning outcomes. So a large lecture hall is reasonably efficient in terms of productivity. You can put 400 people in an auditorium. Learning outcomes are so-so office hours or individual tutoring, like here at Oxford, Um, great learning outcomes, productivity is not so great. Um, What Christian argues is MOOCs basically provide us with a new frontier. And it's up to us how we'd like to use that frontier. We can take the quality of education of a large lecture hall and offering it not to a uh, a few hundred students, but to a few hundreds of thousands of students, so that you may or may not improve learning outcomes, but you sure improve productivity. Or you can take the same amount of time that an instructor spends to prepare and deliver their content and grade the homework, and instead use that same time much more effectively um, to do uh, activities that are much higher up the value chain, like actually interact with the students and cause them to think and and argue reason. And, and that might not improve productivity, but it improves learning outcomes. And so really it's up to us how we want to use this technology, and we'll likely use it in different ways for the different populations that we're trying to hit. So the final part of the talk is the why. Why are we doing this? Why is this a valuable thing to do? Why did I leave Stanford? Um, so worldwide demand for higher education Is projected to expand from less than 100 million in 2000 to over 250 million 25 years later. There is no way to expand capacity, especially in certain parts of the world, at this rate uh, and provide people a high quality education. One case in point is India. India wants to increase its tertiary completion rate from 13 to 30 percent. in order to do that, they would has to build 1,500 new universities and train a million new instructors. Now, this would be an impressive goal, even if you didn't realize that even today, all Indian institutions, including the very top ones, don't have enough instructors, even as it stands, to, um, to cover the needs of their students. So how are you going to generate a whole bunch of new ones? Um, and this is Africa, and this is India. Africa is much worse. In 40 years, Africa will have the largest working age population, and the availability of top-quality institutions in Africa is considerably lower on a per capita basis than it is in India. Um, And this is in all disciplines. So in sub-Saharan Africa, medical schools produce 10,000 graduates a year, but you need 167,000 to meet the demand. In sub-Saharan Africa, this is relative to today's population, not the increased number that we'll see in 40 years. So these are, these are somewhat scary statistics, especially when you think about the fact that the lack of education is the cause of many of societal ills, including um, extremism, poverty, um, malnutrition, overpopulation, and so on. And each and every one of those students that doesn't have access to education is a person. And so I'm going to end this lecture with a few of the people that have been touched by the availability all of a sudden access to a great education. So these are a few of hundreds of examples that I could give. Um, so I'm just going to give you just a few samples. This is Jose from the Philippines, who took the class of experimental genome science from the University of Pennsylvania. The course was very, very challenging. I had to do some of the coursework during lunch at work. There is a different kind of commitment needed in taking online courses. A stronger sense of personal integrity required. I got into an interview for a job I really desired, and I mentioned that I was taking the course. Now, I have a new job evaluating genomic research proposals. Funny how that works. A very different type of access. This is Daniel. Daniel is a 17-year-old boy who's severely autistic. Um, I met Daniel. Um, He has a speaking vocabulary of about 150 words. He communicates by typing on an iPad. Designed by his father. Um, and by doing so, was Daniel was the star student first at the University of Pennsylvania Modern Contemporary American Poetry class and then several other of our courses, mostly in the humanities. Um, Daniel says that uh, I grew a lot from answering the, the quizzes and wrestling with the complex essay grading rubrics that were not only allowing autistic people to learn but actually diminishing the severity of the illness itself. And, to that point, Daniel has just been admitted into the University of Pennsylvania Young Scholars Program this summer, where he's going to be taking his first face-to-face class ever. This is one that I um, that came in about six months ago, and as you'll see, it has particular relevance in the current context. Um, this is anonymous, so we don't know where, where this is from um, or who it is. I'm just going to read it out. Two years ago, I felt incredibly miserable. I'm coming from a traditional family, so I married young, and all my life, I was either pregnant, breastfeeding, or both. I knew that I'm talented, but all I had in life was cleaning, feeding, cleaning, feeding, working part-time. I wanted very much to study like my classmates, but it was very hard to find time. I started and left, started and left. I was deeply depressed, and there was a moment when I tried to kill myself. Though humans are very tenacious of life, and I survived. At that time, I found Coursera. My first course called Game Theory expelled the depression and desire to die once and forever. I feel happy, and I enjoy my life and my family much more. In the last two years, I've taken about 40 courses. I'm addicted. Coursera breathed its life into me. It gave me hope, and I know that when my kids will grow up in 10 to 15 years, I will leave everything and go to Oxford. (laughs) I dream about it. As Charles Dickens once said, suffering has been stronger than all other teaching. I've been bent and broken, but I hope into a better shape. And the last one that I'm gonna show is this one. It's a story of hope um, and accomplishment. This is Sharmi Jehabuddin from Bangladesh, a country where um, girls are often sold into servitude either to a husband or to an employer. Um, Charmaine wanted to do something about that, so she convinced a friend to run away with her, and they opened the bakery where they could support themselves rather than be sold. Um, Unfortunately, neither of them had ever run a business before, and so they weren't doing very well, and they were making only about um, $800 a month from the bakery, which wasn't enough to support her and her friend. So she discovered um, our courses. She started by taking the principal of Microeconomics class from the University of Pennsylvania the model thinking class from University of Michigan, and then more and more classes from Michigan, Irvine, Irvine, some more Penn classes, and so on. And by doing so, uh, Charmaine learned how to run a business. And instead of earning several hundred dollars a month, her bakery now earns $5,000 a month. And uh, not only is that enough to support her and her friends, it's also enough to support a total of seven women, all of whom were at risk of being sold into servitude and, um, and Charmaine makes sure that in every week, each of those women has a few spare hours so that she can also take additional courses to make herself better. And so I'd like to end this with one of my favorite quotes um, from Tom Friedman, who wrote up about this effort just after it launched in May, in May 2012, and how he describes it, is, a is that big breakthroughs are what happen when what is suddenly possible means what is desperately necessary? Thank you very much.